I think it's time. Uh, it's time to uh, get back to it. Well, I think the everything is ready. Our, our next speaker, um, uh, Jeremy Nathans, uh, actually accomplished something that uh, that uh, you know really is remarkable. He was uh, alone in the lab of Drosophilists as a graduate student, and he convinced uh, uh, a, a very dedicated uh, mentor uh, that he should work on something completely unrelated to what, uh, what they were working on, and that ended up in uh, a finding a polymorphism of a kind that you haven't really seen before. Well, actually, you did see it, but we didn't make a big point of it, which is colorblindness. Um, and he worked out the molecular mechanism for uh, colorblindness uh, in uh, humans. And then uh, after that, he did another very counterintuitive thing. He went uh, to decide that he would learn how to do the recombinant DNA stuff at high uh, scale by going to Genentech, uh, which uh, everybody thought was fine. And then uh, he, I think, took up his present position right after that and uh, has been working on uh, the molecular biology of vision uh, mainly uh, ever since then. And uh, it's really a pleasure to introduce uh, Jeremy Nathans, who's going to tell you about it. Actually, gene families this time. Well, David, th thank you very much. Can everyone hear me? Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation. It's been a wonderful day. Uh, I want to just say a few words about David, since uh, this is an opportunity, and I don't get this opportunity often. Uh, I've known David for 25 years. Uh, I got to first see him uh, in depth as an undergraduate, when I was an undergraduate at MIT. He was a terribly young faculty member. This was in the late 70s. He taught a course on molecular biology uh, with Malcolm Gefter, I believe. And those were the days when, uh, of course, it was pre-PowerPoint. Uh, there were no crutches of that sort for the lecturer. In fact, uh, it was just David and his piece of chalk and the chalkboard. And I don't recall any notes either, either for the students or for the lecturer. It was simply extemporaneous uh, talking. And it was sort of the world according to David Botstein. And it was fantastic. It was uh, electrifying, I would say, because David, let me just say that Although he trained in uh, P22 phage genetics and was still active in working out the pathway of lysis and lysogeny, he was also very active in uh, prokaryotic genetics, having just characterized the first uh, prokaryotic transposons and with his postdoc, Nancy Kleckner, uh, really figuring out for the first time how one could use transposons for genetic manipulation. He was already thinking much bigger. Uh, as was mentioned briefly earlier, he, uh, together with uh, Jerry Fink and Ron Davis, were at that time developing the yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae as a model molecular genetic organism. And as also was mentioned earlier, he was thinking even bigger because he was already thinking about human genetics and all of these ideas fermenting really were um, uh, amazingly uh, inspiring for young students, uh, myself included. And so, David, I owe you a great debt. It's a wonderful course. and. I've continued to, to enjoy the aura. And for uh, my colleagues at Princeton, I would say uh, you picked the right person. Now, um, I want to talk about some work that we've been doing recently unrelated to our interest in vision, although the interest in vision continues. Uh, about half of my lab works uh, on one 
small aspect of a general problem in development, and that is uh, related, uh, in our case uh, in particular, to how the brain develops uh, and how certain uh, cell decisions are made related to uh, cell morphology and cell polarity. But the work I'm going to talk about goes beyond the brain, and it goes also across many organisms. And it is uh, a control system that's mediated by a family of ligands called the WINTs, W-N-T, and a cognate family of receptors called frizzles. But as I'll show you, uh, perhaps the most interesting part of this is in the mammalian brain. The most interesting part in terms of mammalian phenotypes is going to be in the brain. Uh, and that's really where the work is heading. Now, I want to start with uh, the people who did the work. This works. It worked a second ago. Oh, here we are. Okay. Let me, I'm just going to try to mention names as we go, but let me just say that the main protagonists are uh, Jen Shi She, former postdoc, um, Phil Smallwood, a technician, Yan Shu Wang, a research associate, uh, and Amir Ratner, also a research associate. And we've had very enjoyable collaborations with Rule Nuss's lab at Stanford, Dan Leahy's lab at Johns Hopkins, and Shiha, Igor Dawid, and Howard Varmus when they were at NIH. Now, what I'm going to tell you is um, two, initially two separate uh, stories, uh, really background work that was not ours, and then the way in which that work has converged. And uh, let's begin with the first of these historically, and this was the discovery uh, by Rul Nussa when he was a postdoc with Harold Varmus of a gene called INT1. INT1 uh, refers to the primary, the main integration site of the mouse mammary tumor virus in the mouse genome in mammary tumors. This is a retrovirus which does not carry an oncogene, which by virtue of its integration adjacent to one of a few targets in the genome can cause tumor genesis. And one of these, called INT1, defined by Rul Nussa at that time, this was about 20-some years ago, uh, turned out to encode a predicted secreted protein, about 45,000 molecular weight, which had the property that it could induce cells to undergo transformation to tumor genicity. And this can be seen uh, in this experiment where we see transformation when this uh, cDNA is transfected into certain responsive cells. We can see a morphologic transformation. And interestingly, if we do the experiment, by, if, or if they did, they did the experiment, I should say, by seeding those cells adjacent to a set of responding cells, seeding the transfected cells adjacent to a set of non-transfected responder cells, we see that uh, some of the adjacent cells, the immediately adjacent cells, are also transformed, as seen by this change in shape from square, non-transformed shape schematically to this oval transformed shape. That is, the factor can act both on the cells that are expressing it, that is, it can be an autocrine effect, but it can also have a paracrine effect. It can act on immediately adjacent cells, but it cannot act at any great distance. So this will act over a few cell diameters. And that was the property of this INT1 protein. Now, the story got more interesting in the late 1980s when Andy McMahon and uh, Mario Capecchi uh, independently knocked this gene out and studied uh, the effect of it. In fact, these were the first knockout mice. Studied the effect of uh, 
those knockouts. And what they found was there was a defect in uh, brain development, specifically in the cerebellum. And in fact, when they looked at the expression pattern in mice and other vertebrates, what they found was that it really has nothing to do with mammary gland development in the normal case. It's present principally in the central nervous system early in development. And here's just a schematic showing its zone of expression in the developing mesencephalon. All right, that was a bit odd. Um, and another connection was made at about the same time. And uh, in fact, two of the main protagonists in this story are in the audience here, Yanni Nuslein Vohart and Eric Wieschaus. And this was a Drosophila member of the family called wingless. Uh, and I should say this uh, lends the W in the name Wint, uh, W for wingless and the NT for int. So the whole family is called Wint for wingless and int. Uh, and this is a gene which, when mutated, uh, has a segment polarity phenotype as seen here. So here's a wild type uh, embryo, a cuticle, and you can see these, this beautiful segmentation into naked, divide, uh, dividing it into naked cuticle and a series of denticle belts, and this is repeating uh, up and down the cuticle here. And then in the wingless mutant, not only is it sort of a stubby looking cuticle, but you can see the denticles are pretty much everywhere. And this was one of a set of genes uh, defined uh, in this so-called segment uh, polarity pathway. Now, uh, this turns out to be part of a feedback loop in which cells expressing wingless, this is a double in situ hybridization, are present in one row of cells and adjacent to them uh, in a couple of cells thick is our uh, zone of engrailed expressing cells. And these two are in sort of a pas de deux in which the wingless cells are maintaining the engrailed expression and the engrailed cells are maintaining wingless expression and so on, repeating down the cuticle from stem to stern. And this, just showing schematically here, uh, just showing schematically here is the basic uh, result of that expression. That is, the wingless expressed in this zone here causes the, this is now in cross-section, the uh, denticle belt pattern uh, in this region anterior and posterior, and then the wingless expressing zone would be naked cuticle here. And here we see in a wingless mutant the effect that uh, all of these cells are reduced to the denticle pattern, and so denticles are seen up and down the embryo. Okay, so this data already by the end of the 1980s indicated a very broad set of biological functions for this family of proteins. Uh, and broad both in what they do and in the organisms in which they do it. Now here's the second and initially unrelated uh, strain in this story. And this is the, the definition by Gubb and Garcia Belido in this, uh, uh, this is the first and classic paper of a set of genes which uh, are responsible for a phenomenon that they call tissue polarity. The title is A Genetic Analysis of the Determination of Cuticular Polarity During Development in Drosophila melanogaster. And the phenotype that they observed in the, the adult cuticle was one in which uh, the precise arrangement of cuticular structures, these are bristles and hairs, was seen to be altered in the following way. The structures are there. as they, So here's the wild type on the left, and the, this is one of these mutants called frizzled on the right. I think you can see that the the large and also the small bristles are present. Uh, their locations appear to be correct, but I think you can see that they're 
uh, directionality is inappropriate. Whereas normally, these bris this happens to be the thorax, these bristles point uh, towards the abdomen, which is at the bottom here. In the mutant, they're pointing somewhat haphazardly, although they're not random. That is, there's a, there's a small scale sort of correlation, a local correlation between directionality here. There's clearly a loss of the global directionality. This is the tissue polarity phenotype. And there was initially about a half a dozen genes uh, which had this phenotype. <clears throat> now let me just say something about uh, this tissue polarity. This is a very general phenomenon, of course, in animal development. There are many places where local structures must know the large-scale game plan. That is, they must know which way is anterior, which way is posterior, which way is dorsal, which way is ventral, and so on. And I think there are a couple ways that you can think about this. This is a, a comment that Julian Lewis made in a recent review. Um, and one way you can look at this is, uh, uh, by analogy, let's say, with a field of wheat through which the wind is blowing. So the wind imparts on the field of wheat a directionality, bending the stalks over. But the wheat itself had no intrinsic directionality to start with. It's imposed entirely from the outside. But a more sophisticated way to look at it, and I think probably the, the way that is more relevant to the biology, is to think about this kind of like a ferromagnet. Now remember, a ferromagnet has local order at several levels. First, each individual atom has an intrinsic magnetic dipole, right? It's pointing either up or down, let's say. And there's local order, so that even if it hasn't been exposed to a, to a strong external magnetic field, there will be local ordering where the dipoles, because of dipole-dipole interactions, are pointing the same way, rather like the local order here. But then, of course, if you impose an external magnetic field, you will snap all of the dipoles into the same direction, and you'll get both local and global order. And that's what we imagine is missing in this case. So this is like a ferromagnet without the global magnetic field imposed on it. Now, in the late 80s, the mid to late 80s, Paul Adler, who in many ways is the unsung hero of this story, he's at University of Virginia, got interested in this class of mutants. And he cloned by positional cloning the first of the uh, tissue polarity genes, the frizzled gene. I should say this is called frizzled because this, the flies look like they're having the fly equivalent of a bad hair day. Uh, and uh, this gene turned out to be uh, a, uh, a gene that encodes a putative integral membrane protein. It looks like a receptor. Uh, here's Adler's uh, model of it. It's got seven putative transmembrane segments. It's got a extracellular and cysteine-rich domain. And Adler suggested that this was the receptor for some sort of positional cue, positional information, which was orienting these polar structures. Okay, now, how we got into this business, not unlike what Connie Sepkode uh, is doing now, uh, we were um, sequencing many thousands of cDNA clones from the human retina in the hopes of identifying genes important for retinal function, for development, and so on. And uh, one of the things that came out, in fact, it was one of the first couple hundred, was a human homologue of the frizzled gene. And when we looked at where it was expressed, and this is actually the updated version, this is a LAC-Z knock-in to this gene, it is expressed at very high levels in the retinas and pretty much not anywhere else. This is the brain and other face parts and so on. That was intriguing. And so we decided to uh, have a closer look at this. And the first thing we noticed in having a closer look was that everywhere we turned in different vertebrate genomes, this is all pre-genome sequencing, we found frizzled genes. It's in frogs, it's in mice, it's in chickens, it's in sea urchins, it's in nematodes, 
since there are more of them in Drosophila and so on. And they all have this characteristic hydropathy profile in which there are seven transmembrane domains. There's a signal sequence. Uh, and there's a, not evident from the hydropathy profile, a cysteine-rich domain in each of these. So clearly there's a large family. We now know there are nine of them in vertebrates. And at that point, we started to wonder what might the ligands be. And we got one critical clue from work of Pranima Banot, who's a grad student in my lab at the time. Uh, she identified a second frizzle gene. We call it frizzle 2 from Drosophila. And uh, when, she, when she looked at where the gene and the protein were expressed, she found that they were expressed in stripes in the early embryo. So we got to thinking about what might be in stripes. We also got to thinking about what ligand family was in search of receptors. And the wince seemed an obvious candidate. In fact, it seemed the, the most obvious candidate. And at that point, we uh, called up Rule Nussa at Stanford and proposed that we work together on this, Rule being the, the expert, the world's expert on wince. And amazingly, the first experiment was the definitive experiment that proved that these were, in fact, the receptors. <clears throat> and that was that if you look at a tissue culture cell, uh, S2 cells, a Drosophila cell line, and ask whether it responds to soluble wingless protein when added to it, the in as indicated by a plus here, uh, the answer is it does not respond. And the response is the stabilization of a protein called armadillo. And this is known from in vivo work, in fact, Eric Vichaus's work that this is the response, the, the, the bona fide response to uh, wingless uh, stimulation. Uh, Schneider cells do not respond, but if you simply transfect in this cDNA, presto, you get the response. And furthermore, you get binding. And this is now, this particular experiment in a completely heterologous system. This is in 293 cells. And here's uh, wingless in red, uh, decorated with an antibody binding to cells that are in green, which have been co-transfected with GFP plus the receptor. Untransfected cells don't bind. So we thought this was pretty good evidence that this is the receptor. Uh, the Drosophila geneticists, as you might guess, were not impressed. They wanted to see it in a fly. And uh, so we, oh, we can skip that. Uh, we asked whether this uh, gene, when mutant, had any effect that might indicate that it was the receptor. and. Uh, I should say at this point that the frizzled gene, the original frizzled, was known not to have any sort of embryonic phenotype that looked anything like a wingless response. Yet, in the cell culture system, it could mediate the response. So that was sort of one point against this hypothesis. That also didn't impress the Drosophila geneticists, as you can imagine. Uh, but it turns out these two are redundant. And so uh, if you knock out frizzled and frizzled too, and in fact, if you knock them out only zygotically, that is only in the genome of the embryo itself, you don't get much of an effect. Mom is putting in uh, frizzled messenger RNA into the embryo. So you have to get rid of frizzled in the mother, plus frizzled and frizzled too in the kid, and then you get the phenotype, and that's shown down here. You get a phenotype that looks exactly like a wingless phenotype. And that can be rescued with a transgene for either frizzled too or frizzled. So these are essentially completely redundant. I should say we've made, those were uh, s small gamma ray induced deletions that encompass not only the frizzled 2 gene in this case, but a little bit of DNA around it. Uh, we've done a cleaner experiment with imprecise p-element excisions, and this just shows the same sort of thing, although this is a hypomorph and not a complete null. But this was uh, sort of a sobering realization, and it's going to be relevant later in this talk, because uh, the large number of these genes, both in flies, there are five or so of them in flies, but as I mentioned, nine of them in us, 
would suggest that there's going to be a significant amount of redundancy. And so what we saw in the fly embryo was uh, almost complete redundancy. And in fact, that explains why uh, this receptor for wingless, which was on everyone's shopping list in the original embryo uh, mutant analyses, was never picked up. Uh, it simply would not have shown up in the analyses which look for single gene defects. But it makes us wonder whether, as we do genetics, in sort of the classic way in mice, knocking genes out one at a time, whether it will be a challenge to see all of the phenotypes or even many of the phenotypes given uh, the possibility for significant redundancy. Now let me just say that the work at this point has sort of gone in two different directions. One direction is more biochemical and biophysical. We want to understand how the ligand interacts with the receptor. We want to understand the, the specificity. I should mention that uh, in addition to the fact that there are nine receptors, there are actually 18 ligands, 18 wints in the mammalian genome. So there's a uh, very great possibility for crosstalk between receptors and ligands. We know at this point, the, the overhead that I skipped, that the cysteine-rich domain is the ligand binding domain. Oops. And we've set up quantitative binding assays between the ligand binding domains and the uh, ligands, and this is just an example of plate assay in which a alkaline phosphatase fusion to the uh, Wnt protein is used to probe a, a 96 well tray on which various uh, cysteine rich domains are arrayed, and this is just a dilution seri series going down the tray, and each column has a different mutant or wild type placed in it. And we can measure affinity constants and so on. It's, it's up on the order of 10 nanomolar. Uh, binding affinity, quite respectable. And we've since then collaborated with Dan Leahy at Johns Hopkins and solved the crystal structures of two of these cysteine-rich uh, domains. I should just mention parenthetically, in addition to the receptor family, there is another family of receptor antagonists, uh, which seem to encode just the ligand binding domains. These are not differentially spliced uh, derivatives of the receptors themselves. These are separate genes. They encode a secreted form of the ligand binding domain. They bind also with good affinity. And we think that those are present. There are five of those in mammalian genomes. Those are present in complex patterns, probably to sharpen up the pattern of wind action by inhibiting function in some places, permitting it at others where those antagonists are not present. Now, the crystal structures were done of one of the antagonist cysteine-rich domains and one of the receptor cysteine-rich domains, they're virtually identical. Here they are the superimposed, one's in brown and one's in blue, they're virtually identical structures. And uh, they both, interestingly, crystallized as back-to-back -back dimers. This is one of them. Here's the other one. Uh, we don't know whether dimerization plays any role in this receptor family, but this is an intriguing clue that it might perhaps. And finally, by mutagenesis of essentially all the surface residues, we've mapped out those critical places uh, where the ligand uh, contacts the receptor, these are places which, when mutated, abolish uh, ligand binding. Other places in green uh, have virtually no effect on ligand binding. This is just the front of the domain, and this is the back of the domain. <clears throat> okay, the other direction which we're taking, which I'll just describe in the last part of the talk, is the question of what the role of these receptors is in mammalian development. And let me just say that um, the role of the frizzles in Drosophila vis-a-vis uh, -vis their interaction with uh, wingless or other wints is uh, far from worked out. We know that in the embryo, 
the frizzled phenotypes uh, virtually uh, are identical to the wingless phenotype. And so we imagine that wingless binding to the frizzles essentially accounts for the entire story in the embryo. In the cuticle in the adult, that's not the case. We, we still do not know whether any of the wints play a role in that aspect of frizzled function, this tissue polarity function. To date, there are no uh, wints that have been identified by mutation or by their expression pattern, which appear to be candidates for uh, that part of the frizzled story. So it's possible that frizzles lead sort of a, a double life and that there is a, a role that involves wingless or wint binding and a second role, perhaps, which is independent of wint binding, which is involved in this tissue polarity phenotype. So I introduced that just to say that uh, it leaves us with the possibility for a complexity in the mammalian system uh, beyond just responding to wince and simply being the readouts for wince. And so there may be things to learn from this that one can't learn from, for instance, wint knockouts. And as I'll show you in a minute, the knockouts so far are completely different from any of the wint phenotypes that have been described. So let me describe two knockout animals that have been interesting. One is frizzled four and the other is frizzled three. Uh, and here we're going to take a neurobiological turn. Frizzled four is widely expressed. So these are beta-gal knock-ins, so we can tell where things are expressed. Frizzled, frizzled four is widely expressed uh, in the brain. It's in cortex. It's in thalamus. In the cerebellum, it's only in Purkinje cells, the large cells that form a single layer, not in the more abundant granule cells. It's in the retina, shown here. Here's photoreceptor cells. And interestingly, it's in the inner ear. In the inner hair cells, in the cochlea, and in the otolith organ and in the Christi, the organs of linear acceleration and angular acceleration. And it looks like it's in the neurons in those cells. What happens if you knock this out? Well, if you knock it out, you get a mouse with three problems. And I'll tell them to you in order of severity from the mouse's point of view. Problem number one is the mice go deaf. And this is a, an auditory brainstem response. This is the clinical test for people uh, who are potentially having inner ear problems. Uh, we're just looking at the response to different intensities of uh, sound, just a click, uh, 100 decibels uh, sound pressure level. This is like a rock concert for a mouse. And here's the response here. And here's one of the mutants. It's just flat. OK, so that's one problem. Problem number two, probably more severe from the mouse's point of view, is a progressive ataxia. So. Here's one of these mice. I think you can see if you're a mouse aficionado, it's sort of staggering uh, around with an, uh, a wide gait, especially its hind limbs. Um, if you dip its uh, hind limbs in India ink and you let it run across a piece of paper, you'll see for a wild type a nice robust gait here. But for the mutant, it's kind of dragging its feet. It's taking these little steps. And the reason it's doing that, it's got nothing wrong with its hind limb muscles, nothing wrong with the spinal cord as far as we can tell. It's got a massive degeneration of the cerebellum. And the cerebellum controls the coordinated movements of uh, such things, in, including things involved in gait. And here's a wild-type cerebellum. This is a silver stain showing the fibers. Here's one of these mutants. It's very moth-eaten. And here at low power, you can just see it looks like Swiss cheese. And what we see is that, curiously, if you look early in development, uh, the cerebellum is built uh, roughly normally, all the cell divisions appear to occur normally. And here's just, at this point, one distinction from what's been seen with the WINTS. The original WINT phenotype, that is the ability to cause cancer when overproduced, is 
clearly a large part of function in many tissues. And we now know, for instance, that in colon cancers, many colon cancers in, in humans, there's a drive for proliferation because the Wnt pathway is upregulated, not at the level of the receptor and the ligand, but at the level of intracellular pathway components. That is, the uh, beta-catenin, which is the armadillo homolog in us, is uh, more stabilized in these colon cancers, and hence the cells are being driven to divide. And cell division is also seen as the basic unifying theme in many of the Wnt knockouts with respect to CNS development. Excessive cells are seen, uh, I'm sorry, excessive cells are seen when you overexpress a Wnt, fewer cells when you knock out a Wnt. But that's not the case with the frizzles. Uh, cell uh, birth and migration seem to be fine, but then after the cerebellum is built, if we look at cell death, and this is the tunnel assay, looking for fragmentation of DNA, there's very little cell death in a normal cerebellum. This is just the DAPI stain, the nuclear stain to go with this picture here. But if you look in a mutant cerebellum, what you see is massive cell death among the granule cells, the cells that interact, that synapse onto the Purkinje cells. So this would suggest that a primary defect in the Purkinje cells has somehow now caused the granule cells uh, to respond by dying. And this death continues at a uh, reasonable clip uh, beyond this point as well. Now, finally, the thing that we think actually is the most uh, severe from the mouse's point of view, and which is, again, totally uh, another story, is that uh, this frizzled 4 gene appears to be involved in the correct development of the esophagus, the upper GI tract. And, in a not, and let, me just, let me just show you this panel. In a wild-type animal, if you stain for smooth muscle myosin, you see this beautiful thick ring of myosin around this uh, slender, uh, lumen of the esophagus. In one of these mutants, there's no smooth muscle, and the esophagus is enormously distended. And uh, these animals have a very difficult time projecting, uh, moving food by peristalsis down the esophagus into the stomach, and we think they ultimately uh, starve to death as a result of that. So here's an example where, and again, not unlike the Drosophila case, where the receptor is used in a variety of different places and at a variety of different times in development and maybe in very different ways, in the same way that the embryo development, the segment polarity, and the cuticular polarity may be very different processes. Each of these processes may be very different, but the receptor has been co-opted on multiple occasions to subserve them. Now let me turn to the frizzled 3 mutant, which I think is really the, the more interesting of the two. This is also a gene that is widely expressed in the central nervous system. Again, this is a beta-gal knock-in, so we can follow the expression pattern. It's expressed widely beginning at mid-gestation, and uh, except for the cerebellum, which shows very little expression, it's uh, widely expressed. It's in cortex, it's in the thalamus, it's in the hippocampus, and so on. What happens when you knock that out? Well, if you knock it out, the first thing you notice just from the outside is, and even non-mouse geneticists should be able to see this, this is a normal mouse on the left, this is a mutant mouse on the right. They look like little pigs, they have curly tails. And in the mouse business, a curly tail is almost always a sign of a neural tube defect. The only thing you can see grossly beyond the curly tail is that the ventricles are enlarged. So here are the lateral ventricles in a mutant. In a wild type, you can barely see them. They're sort of virtual spaces. They're very tiny. Why are they enlarged? They're enlarged because the cortex is thinner, and the striatum, the region just uh, lateral to the midline here, involved in movement control is also smaller. 
Why is this smaller? Well, if you look, for instance, at these two sections, so this is a wild-type section through a cortex. Here's a, here's a mutant cortex. The cortex is clearly thinner. Uh, the number of cells isn't that different, but the layers that have nerve fibers are significantly thinned. And I should say that early on, there's very little to be seen in the cortex that distinguishes mutant from wild type. The production of cells and the migration of cells, their correct layering in the cortex, all of those things seem to be normal. Just to give you an example, if you look with BRDU labeling at now uh, proliferation, and this is in the ventricular zone of the cortex, so here's a lateral ventricle, here's a mutant, here's a wild type, age matched. BRDU incorporation is virtually identical. There's really no difference in proliferation. The maturation of these cells is essentially normal. Here's the antibody staining for tubulin. Here's a wild type, here's a mutant. It's, it's everywhere in these post-mitotic cells. And the layering by many different criteria, here a wild type and here a mutant, is essentially normal. But what's abnormal is the neurons in the cortex and in the thalamus fail to produce the major fiber tracts, and it's a massive failure. So here, for example, are the connections between the thalamus, this is the way station for sensory, sensory inputs, and the cortex. These big bundles here are going between thalamus and cortex, and, they, and, they, and wires are going both ways. Here in the mutant, they're completely missing. They're just disconnected. And here you can see this in a, this was a horizontal section. Here's a coronal section. Here are these fibers. The fibers are visualized, I should say, with an anti-neurofilament antibody. And here are these subcortical fibers, and they're flowing down through the striatum towards the thalamus, and in the mutant, they're just completely gone. And you can see this. Let me just show you this a couple of different ways. You can see this by tracing with dye I. For instance, if you put a dye I crystal in the striatum, and you follow its tracking along the axons that pass through there, you'll see tracks heading towards the cortex. You also see the anterior commissure heading towards the other side of the brain. And in a mutant, they, it just goes nowhere, diffuses locally. And likewise, you can see from cortex, fibers tracking down. This is just a series of sections moving through the brain. You can see the fiber beginning here. It gets a little further. It gets a little further. It gets a little further. And in the mutant, it's simply not there. So. Here are a set of defects in axonal projection, independent pretty much of everything else. And I should say this is also true of particular fiber tracts if you monitor them histochemically. Here's just the most perhaps famous fiber tract one could monitor. This is the nigrostriatal tract. This is the one that degenerates in people with Parkinson's disease. It originates in the substantia nigra. And the cells, the cells of origin, are perfectly fine. This is using tyrosine hydroxylase, which visualizes these dopaminergic neurons. Here's a wild-type substantia nigra, the cluster of cells. Here's a mutant. I should say that the slight difference in appearance is just the orientation of the section. And now if we ask about the projections into the striatum with either tyrosine hydroxylase or the dopamine transporter, both presynaptic markers, there's massive innervation in the wild-type striatum, and there's no innervation in the mutant striatum. So these fibers have simply not gotten there. Now, what's happened to them? Have the fibers set out on a journey and somehow gotten lost? Have they gotten there and then retracted, or have they never set out? And we don't know for sure 
the answer to all those questions, but the weight of the evidence at this point is that they haven't gotten very far from the get-go. And what we've done is to look by dye-I labeling, by tracing fibers at different ages, at essentially every day throughout development, uh, and asked uh, what happens at the very earliest stages. So here's an example at embryonic day 13. If we place a dye-I crystal in the cortex, and this is a, just a consecutive series of coronal sections going from the front of the brain towards the back of the brain, and here's the same thing with the fluorescence image, but we've superimposed both fluorescence and the uh, Marsky images up here. You can see that the dye-I spreads locally, and it also spreads into this fiber, this little wisp of a fiber, which is the very first fiber heading into the thalamus, which is the central structure. And here it is starting here. Here it is over here heading into the uh, ventral thalamus, and here's a little more of it. That's the wild-type situation. If you put a diacrystal in the same place in a mutant, you see the local spread, but you never see any fibers getting into the thalamus. There's, nothing, there's no wisp up here. So from the very earliest stages, at least at this resolution, the fibers seem not to have found their destinations. Now, I should say we're, we're trying to look by electron microscopy at this point and ask whether anything happened, whether there's sort of a nub of the axon and, and, and where it might have gone, and we don't have that answer yet. An interesting clue, though, with respect to, can everyone see this? I know what it looks like, but maybe I'm using my imagination. Uh, with respect to the fiber uh, fate, is that if you take these mutant cells and put them in culture, there's no defect in axonogenesis. They grow perfectly beautiful fibers. I can see it. And they form synapses. This is a uh, bassoon as a presynaptic protein. There are lots of fibers in a wild type, lots of fibers in a mutant. It's as if being in, or it is, is the case, that being in the natural environment, in the developing brain, if you're missing frizzled three, the, the, if the cells are missing frizzled three, they are unable to grow fibers. But then when released from some sort of inhibition by being in the culture dish, they have no problem growing these fibers. So there are a couple of ways to think about this. One of them is that maybe frizzled three somehow allows an axon to uh, push through the tissue. There's some sort of requirement for being able to move through normal tissue. And of course, when cells are dissociated and put in culture, that uh, necessity has uh, gone away. One doesn't have to push through anything. Another possibility, though, which I find more intriguing and which harks back to the original tissue polarity phenotype, is that in culture, there's no directionality that's been lost by the dissociation procedure. And cells are free to make their fibers in any direction. But in the intact brain, the fiber not just has to come out of the cell, but it has to know where to go. It has to know which direction to go. And if it fails to do that, it doesn't grow. And so that would be an example in which the unipolar growth of the axon is analogous to the unipolar growth of the bristle in the fly cuticle. And in that case, directionality is critical to the further development of that process. And we're trying to test those ideas now. So I think I'll stop there, show you a picture of beautiful Johns Hopkins, and take any questions. Any questions? We're going to see if we can start the next computer while you're asking. Yes. 
frizzled floor knock, I don't know how you're thinking about the question. I thought it might have been the Perkinis review back there, Peter in the Rhino suggesting a non-set autonomous type That's an interesting idea. So the question was whether the frizzle receptor, which we think of as being only on the receiving end, could actually be a ligand and be sending information the other way. That's a provocative idea. Another idea that we're thinking about is that, and this is uh, now made more substantive by a recent report from uh, groups that work on Drosophila that have found both frizzles and wince at the synapse, is that uh, frizzle 4 is at the synapse. And if the granule cells find that they cannot synapse correctly on the Purkinje cells, they end up dying as a result. That's, a, that's another <coughs> hypothesis. But I like your idea. Here. In Drosophila, there's a second co-receptor in the arrow family. You have a sense of whether there's so the question is how to integrate the co-receptors into frizzled functions. I, th I, I think that's still not integrated. As, as Rick Lifton indicated, uh, LRP5 has an effect almost exclusively with respect to bone formation. LRP6, the other homologue in mammals, has a very widespread effect. That gene was knocked out by Bill Scarns with an enhancer trap. And there, it's an embryo lethal, and there are multiple defects. There are defects in the limb, in the brain, and so on. So the LRPs are clearly sort of sparsing up the phenotypic space in different ways, LRP6 being the, getting the lion's share in mammals. But I don't know that I can say anything about the Drosophila case. OK. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for a great talk.